this week on the Back Table Podcast. I would just say, like, I, I have no idea, you know, how we built our practice. Like, when I look back on it, you know, because where we started to where we are today is just totally different. I think you should really just throw yourself out there and try things. As far as, you know, all these weird injections and stuff like that, like, that's the easy stuff if you're an IR. You know, never feel like you can't do that stuff. Everyone can do that, you know. And then all the things to get you to the point where you have a practice, like, you can figure it out. You know, that's the stuff we don't know how to do when we come out of training, but you'll figure it out just like everybody else did. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. This is your guest host, Shamit Desai. As a reminder from prior episodes, I'm an interventional radiologist in Chicagoland. I'm excited to introduce our special guest today, Kirti Prasad. Welcome, man. Oh, thanks, Shamit. Appreciate it. So Kirti is the co-founder and director of interventional radiology at the Centers for Pain Control and Vein Care in Northwest Indiana. It's a unique practice that I've actually referred to myself, and uh, I've had a lot of uh, great chats with Kirti over time. It's great uh, seeing you in person on, on Zoom, man. <laughs> yeah, good to see you, Shamit. So can you tell the audience a little bit about your background? Where are you from? Where did you train? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I grew up in Chicago, kind of uh, not far from where you're at today. Uh, I did med school and residency at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And then I went to uh, IU for uh, my interventional radiology fellowship. And that was back in uh, you know, 2015. <laughs> yeah, feels like a while, huh? And what was your training focus on? You, you know, you, you're at some major institutions here in Chicago and at IU, um, very well-known research studies coming out of those institutions. What was, uh, what was kind of the focus during your residency and fellowship? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I was in med school at UIC, I actually met Ron Gaba. He was a new attending at that time and um, he had a huge impact on me. You know, he was, he's one of these guys who's like constantly improving. And UIC was a big liver and transplant center at that time. So it's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of taste, Y90. And then, you know, Ron was just like a, a tips machine. And then when I went to IU, it was, it was actually like way more broad. It was just a really, really busy place. Kind of covered everything except stroke. A lot of transplant liver, Y90, that stuff, but tons of trauma. And then I also did a bunch of, um, you know, peripheral vascular procedures, um, including, and then we even did some aortas. Those kind of falling off at the time, but um, got, got our hands on some of them. It was good. Yeah. Really cool. So... Um, we'll obviously get into a lot of your practice makeup right now, but um, I can pretty much uh, suffice it to say that you're not doing a lot of tips and Y90 and uh, trauma embolizations in your outpatient centers. Is that right? No, that's that's right. I'm you don't you don't want me doing your tips. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so um, you know you have these really unique centers in Northwest Indiana, and that's really what we want to get into here. Uh, so what wh can you tell us a little about your practice setup? What does your practice offer? Yeah. So, you know, we're an independent um, private practice in Northwest Indiana, about an hour outside Chicago, a very large pain management practice. Um, we have a bunch of interventional pain docs as well as um, two interventional radiologists. And then uh, we also have a large uh, vein practice, actually one of the largest vein practices in Indiana. And then we do some CLI and uh, some UFIs as well. That's kind of more of a boutique part of our practice, but the large uh, volume of what we do is veins and pain. So veins and pain has a nice ring to it. What do your, uh, what, what does your practice look like? Are you working out of hospitals? Or are you exclusively outpatient? Uh, what, what's your setup? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. We have four um, ambulatory surger- surgical centers. We also have a, um, a large OBL, uh, kind of two OBLs. Um, two of the centers function as an ASC slash OBL. Um, we don't do much at hospitals at all. Um, some of my pain partners, they'll, they'll go there for consults every now and then, but it's pretty rare. Um, we're really just outpatient. Our vein program in particular, I think, is kind of a large strength of ours. Um, that's got to be outpatient in my mind. If you're going to build a big superficial venous practice, it's got to be really focused. And that's that's how we've approached that. You know, we get patients from all over. Uh, six to eight hours away is pretty normal for uh, some some of our wound referrals. Um, it, it's been really great. Super cool. Um, that sounds like a really unique practice, man. Um, you know, very atypical for IR. Particularly, <laughs> yeah, you know, some of the things I want to get into uh, is the partnership with your pain partners. Um, I'm assuming they're uh, anesthesia pain or PMNR. Or independently treated. Yeah, they're all anesthesiologists. All anesthesiologists. Oh, sorry, they, they, they're all anesthesiologists. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you, you you talked about your partners going to the hospital at times. So, are you going to the hospital at all, or do you maintain privileges? Uh, how does that work in the state of Indiana? Yeah. So, in Indiana, to work in an OBL, you don't need hospital privileges. To work in an ASC, you do. The law is kind of vague, but really, you need privileges within the same or an adjacent county in Indiana, which is a very large area. <laughs> In Indiana, <laughs> um, but we we maintain privileges at a couple places. Um, honestly, you know it's nothing we've been able to really grow. Um, we don't we don't focus a lot on it. I don't think the hospital's really focused on it. But we've been lucky enough to keep that going. I, I will say it's it's a challenge. You know, it's it's a good question, a good point to bring up. In most states, I think that's kind of your uh, rate limiting step is you know getting the hospitals to agree to let you do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understood. So, w- what are the biggest strengths of your practice in in your mind, Kirthi? It's, it's an interesting practice. Uh, it's different from most. I'm sure there are unique challenges, unique strengths, and difficulties, um, both with working with a different specialty altogether in a multi-specialty group, and also, you know, being an owner as well as an operator. Yeah. yeah so, a couple questions there. I think um, you know, joining a pain management practice was kind of unique to, for me. You know, pain docs, they rely heavily on volume. So it was really interesting to see how they structured a practice, how they ran their clinic, how their back end functioned. You know, they do a ton of procedures, but they have, you know, they're not high revenue generators, right? So you need to be really efficient with how you manage that. Um, I was able to learn a lot from them. And at the same time, when you work with people who have built a practice before, they may not really know what you're talking about, what you're doing, but they're going to give you guidance on how to do it mm-hmm. and how to get it done. You know, when we were starting out, I would, I was totally afraid to like hire one additional employee, you know, cause I'm like, oh, we might be bankrupt next week. Yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> My partners are like, just do it, just do it. You know, it'll be <laughs> fine, you know? And, and it, it was fine, you know? And, and it's kind of interesting working with um, guys who really know like outpatient medicine cause they, they really know how to market themselves, you know, how to treat the patients, how to treat the referring docs. That's all stuff that I think we all intuitively know. But when you actually see people put into practice, you know, it makes a big difference and kind of leaves an impact on you. The other interesting thing too is, you know, a lot of people ask me why pain management? And I tell you this, like, if you want to do peripheral vascular disease, you know, we're competing with a lot of people. You need to go where the patients are. And we realized early on that pain management and chronic pain population, they're the same people who have peripheral vascular disease, right? Like they've been working hard their whole lives. They're on their feet. Things are wearing out. And then, you know, there's just a lot of synergy there. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, 
You're telling me that patients don't know exactly what interventional radiology is as, as a specialty? It's the first time I've heard of that. Yeah, but, yeah patients and docs, a lot of docs too. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, that's interesting. So you're saying that pain, veins, and PAD are often concomitant. Are, are you finding that that has made up the majority of your practice so you don't have time for some of the other referrals? Are you getting referrals for other procedures? I'm sure there's a bit of spine work in there that that both pain and IR could do as well. Yeah, yeah. So the you know the, it's not just veins and arteries that that I do all day. Right. Um, my partners send me a ton of interesting pain cases. Over time, I've kind of taken over most of the vertebral augmentation. You know, we do some interesting uh, newer procedures, Vertiflex, uh, DRG stimulators, um, and then a lot of less common stuff. Just weird ultrasound guided blocks. You know, my one of my partners used to work at HSS and. He'll like send me an article or something. Say, hey, can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> like, I've got an ultrasound and, and a few needles, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, and actually, the, those procedures are a lot of fun, you know. Um, I, I'm I don't think you could be, you know build a practice on that. It's just too infrequent, and um, you know, the revenue is really not there, right? But you know, you're treating neuralgia parasthetica. You know, you block some ileal hypogastrics, some median nerves. You even do some Botox for like bruxism and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, just a lot of random stuff, but. It's really satisfying. You know, these patients have been bounced around forever. And then, honestly, in like 30 seconds, you know, you're, you're relieving them something that's been, you know, ruining their lives in a lot of cases. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, I can, I've done a lot of the other bread and butter spine injections over time, just filling in for these guys, but they're a lot faster than mm -hmm. I am. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, <laughs> these guys sure. will do like, you know, 40 spine injections in a day. I, I can't keep up, you know? Yeah. And were you were, yeah. were you doing these in fellowship or residency at all? Or, or uh, did you learn this all through their mentorship? Yeah, um, I I think maybe I'd done a couple epidurals yeah. <laughs> in, this, uh, in, uh, in fellowship, but that was about it. Um, they just have so much volume. It's it's a quick, quick learning experience. As radiologists, I think we have a certain approach, which is quite a bit different than how um, maybe other specialties do things. We're, we're heavily focused on proper imaging techniques, you know, and um, knowing exactly where we are. You know, maybe that slows us down a little bit, but I think it lets us do certain things that, um, you know, maybe other people can't do or they haven't spent the time to build that part of their skill set. So that's been like um, something that I've been able to bring to the practice too, you know, more challenging things. Um, they'll ask me to do them and I can take some time and knock it out, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I had a recent episode that came out um, where I was the guest and I, I talked about building an IR skill set. And I, I, I find it's the, the exact same thing. You just you read a couple of things and you rely on your catheter wire and needle placement skills on fluoroscopy. And an IR can pretty much get a needle, a wire or a catheter anywhere in the body. Um, I totally agree with you. But I'm sure it's nice to have these people to lean on, um, it, particularly in a dedicated center. I mean, if you were in a hospital and just getting one offs, um, would you still have the same passion? No, no, not, not at all. You know, um, when you run your own practice and honestly, a lot of the, I mean, actually all the guys I work with, they're all real close friends of mine, you know, a couple of my best friends, right? We put all of our effort into this, right? Like this is what you spend all your time thinking about and how to make it better. It's just a lot different, right? We control the whole process for the patient. You know, we take on a lot of responsibility as a result, but we really like doing it. And I do too, you know, um, I don't think if I was in a hospital, I would respond like if someone called me up and they're like hey can you do this 
random Botox thing you've never done before, I'd probably just say, hey, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I can certainly vouch for that, having sent you, you know, several referrals um, for patients who either couldn't get into my clinics or like just, uh, you know, their insurance wasn't accepted by the hospitals that I worked at. They've all, you know, not to build your ego up too much, but, you know, they, they all have said that the process at your centers, it, it felt like a luxury spa versus being at a hospital, which can totally be a nightmare for patients. So personally, I can vouch for that for your practice. Um, how, how long do you think it took and who are the players involved in creating that infrastructure? Yeah, that that's, you know, really important to think about. And I appreciate the the feedback too. <laughs> um, you know, all of our procedures require so much coordination, right? It's just like from the receptionist to your billing team, you know, to your medical assistants, you know, and we hire all these people, right? We have surgical and x-ray techs. Um, we have ultrasound techs. We have NPs. You need to work out the details at every single step. If you're focused on you know, just a couple of procedures and a couple of disease processes, over time, you work out all the kinks, right? Like you've already seen every single hiccup at every single stage and everybody on your team understands why that's really important. So everyone's always getting better. Yeah, and, totally. you know, the way we do it is we want them to make it better, right? Hmm. So my ultrasound techs, you know, I don't need them to do procedures with me, but for the first few years that we have them employed, they're doing cases with me, hmm. you know, so every week they're seeing me do, you know, at least 30 or 40 venous interventions, right? So they go back and when they're scanning people, when they're troubleshooting, they know exactly how I'm going to approach something. Hmm. They know how I'm going to fix something, right? We work very closely together. And thinking globally, like from a competitive standpoint, once you've established that, it's really hard for other people to compete with you, right? Like, how do you develop that quality? How do you bring that to the patients? You know, you can go back to your referring docs and say, hey, this is how it went with this complex patient you sent me, or this guy had been worked on before. We cleaned it all up. This is kind of what was going on. And people start to pick up on that. And at the same time, a lot of Venus interventions are pretty low revenue, right? Like some of them, they're not paying what a kyfo pays or arterial intervention pays. Absolutely. But you can work it into your workflow and you can make it work, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, maybe a procedure that economically isn't desirable, but the patient really needs, you can make it work for you, right? Um, because it's easy for you to do, you know? Yeah. And yeah. at the end of the day, if I figure if, if you, they think of you as their doctor, if they can identify you as their vascular specialist, only good things will come. That's yeah. that's that's such a great point um, for for people all all throughout their career, uh, especially trainees. So you 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 talked a bit about um, you know really training up these uh, the, the sonographers, um, other essential players within your practice. You know people without which the practice really doesn't run. Um, what we found in the hospital setting is, given the current climate in healthcare, just broadly and particularly in the interventional space and in radiology in general, is that people are leaving. People who are very trained up and very, very good at what they do, they're getting offers for double, triple, quadruple the pay. They're they're traveling. How have you dealt with retention? Has that at all been an issue for your practice? And how have you just dealt with keeping people, wanting them to stay? Yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. Um, you know, we invest a lot in all of our people, right? Some people leave, you know, there's just normal attrition, right, associated with the business. I think We've seen um, some of the things you're describing. You know, we, we have about 120 employees across the company. So 
you know, we've lost a bunch of billing people. We're getting crazy offers. We lost a bunch of nurses. As far as the core core team, we haven't seen that as much. And mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, people appreciating that you've invested a lot in them, right? You know, personally, I, I think they're, they're not really indebted to, but they want to stick around, right? They like the mission. They like what they're doing. They know what it's like at other places. So someone has to really, really make a compelling offer, I think. Mm-hmm. But with that said, you know, I've lost well-trained ultrasound techs in the past to, um, you know, some of the chain vein clinics, the national chains. Um, they they paid, like you said, almost twice what we're paying. And you know, I don't I don't blame those people for leaving <laughs> either, right? Yeah. Gotta um, feed the kids. Yeah, exactly. But we try to give people a lot of autonomy, no BS at work, right? Like yeah. minimize the politics. You know, I don't have a lot of like, paperwork they have to do, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it's a big problem. Um, I think maybe at the hospital, you know, you're maybe more vulnerable, right? Because there's guys like me looking to hire people like that sometimes. Sure, you know? sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let's, let's take a step back for just a second. So you said there are six physicians in your practice, yeah? Yeah. And how many are IR? Uh, there's two two IRs. Two okay, two IRs. So you and uh, so you and an IR partner are essentially running the IR show. Did you come in at the same time? No, you know I actually came in straight out of fellowship. Okay, um, there's really um, not much of a a vein business at that time, but we built it up over time. And then um, about a year year and a half after that, um, my partner Monish came to join me. And then um, a few years after that, we hired an MP, and you know it just kind of kept growing. Okay. Yeah. So the, uh, so the pain practice was already, I, I'm taking it, the pain practice was already established then? Yeah. So when I joined, there were um, about one and a half locations for the pain practice. Okay. So it was my senior partner who started the practice and then another part-time location. And then we did not have an ASC at that time, as I recall. And then we kind of built that over time. So once I joined, um, we kind of built a couple other clinics and started adding ASCs. And then eventually the OBL, um, yeah. And and honestly, the OBL was kind of a natural thing. You know, we just started with veins originally, mm-hmm. but you start getting referrals for arterial work, and then you realize your partners have C arms just sitting there. So you're yes. like, hey, I can use that. Yes. <laughs> and why did you yeah. go with ASC versus a, a all OBL model? Yeah, yeah. So the the ASC has certain advantages. Um, one of them is actually. Um, especially on the pain management side, the uh, the revenue is superior. So the reimbursement is just favorable okay. in that environment. And then we also had the intent originally to bring in you know, other types of docs. Um, I think we've had some guys doing some kind of spine surgery and you know some ortho guys come in from time to time. Mm-hmm. You know That part of the business never really took off. And I think we haven't really spent a lot of time growing it, but we wanted that flexibility. Interesting, yeah. To get back to a point you made a little bit ago, um, you, you came out straight out of fellowship and you came out solo. Um, you know, this is really for the residents and early careers. How did you, uh, I mean, how was it going into an OBL ASC setting without an established mentor in that practice? You know, you were learning new techniques and you really were uh, thrown into becoming a business owner as well as a, uh, a practicing physician for the first time. How, how did that suit you? How long till you got your feet under you? Yeah, that, you know, that was scary. Um, it's funny, uh, this is like 2016, I guess, and OBLs were kind of a thing then. They're slowly taking off. Um, I, I didn't know anyone with an OBL, you know, right? I knew one person. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't, um, 
you know, I joined OEIS at that time. I got some good information. Uh, one of the things I realized though is, you know, for me personally, I wanted to build something in the outpatient setting and I saw the value of something really focused, right? Because I was kind of in the opposite environment, you know, in, in fellowship. And I thought, wow, you know, there's so much we can do here, but it's really not being done to its fullest potential, right? And you're really leaving the market open for other people to just come in and do it. And in a lot of cases, these are lesser trained physicians, right? And so I thought, why, why are we doing that? And so then I kind of got obsessed with that concept. So then I went to the pain guys uh, who were friends of mine and I, you know, we talked a little bit about this and, you know, they saw a lot of this stuff and um, they said, hey, come do it. Like you said, though, you know, they weren't IR mentors, you know, right. so getting out there. And honestly, I still remember the first vein ablation I did on my own. I was scared out of my mind <laughs> and I have no idea why, but I was, yeah. you know, yeah. I triple checked everything. Yeah. I think I called my friend, you know, afterwards to make sure I did it right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like our DR and, uh, colleagues, uh, you know, when they have to sign their first chest x-ray on their own as an attending, <laughs> just like you sit there and stare at the sign button for 10 minutes before you actually click it. I, I, I totally feel you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it was fun. Um, the other scary thing is, you know, you're, you're getting bills that you have to pay and you don't have any income, right? Mm -hmm. So you spend all of your time just focused on that. And I remember talking to one of my old chairmen about it actually. And he said, Hey, you know, weren't you, weren't you scared? And I said, well, you know, I had nothing to lose, right? All I had was debt. Yeah. It's you know, so, so just going to be more debt. Yeah, you know? for sure. <laughs> I just kept telling myself that. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. And now, and now you're the owner of, you know, um, a pretty much Northern Indiana, you know, broadly spanning wide territory, um, multi-specialty practice, what are the pros and cons of being an owner? Yeah. Um, you know, the pros, I think is, it's kind of the stuff everyone talks about, right? You have a lot of autonomy, a lot of independence. It's no one ever tells me what to do, right? Like, um, I never do anything I don't want to do. And I only really do the stuff that I feel is worthwhile. Monish and I want to spend three or four hours revascularizing something, we'll, we'll do it, right? No one's, no one's complaining about the list. You know, no one's saying like, hey, why don't you stent this guy? You know, like, I just don't do stuff like that, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't really care. And also, you know, it's, it's really nice to see the development and all the people who work for you, right? Like, you hire these people, you see the whole process improve. It's really satisfying, you know, and you're really helping all these people develop their careers. But then, you know, that's also some of the downside, right? That that's like... A lot of responsibility, you know, a lot of, <laughs> you got to keep paying people, you know, like everything falls on you at the end of the day, you know, something gets messed up, you know, you're the one calling the referring doc, you're the one calling the patient, you know, which I don't mind doing, but it is a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you control your life too, right? You say, I only want to work four days a week. I'm only going to work four days a week. It's really, it's really good. And that's, that's how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. So it seems like you have a lot of, you know, you wear a lot of hats by being an owner, um, essentially, and you're, you're responsible for a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, your patients, obviously, but then all of your staff as well. How is uh, this set up? Are you um, full equity owners of your practice or are you, uh, are you part of a larger network? No. So the, um, the clinics and the ASCs are entirely physician owned. So it's just me and my partners. Um, we have different equity splits kind of based on when we came in and how much money we put in. Mm -hmm. You know, that's 
that's something I also owe my partners. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of money to bring to the table. They helped fund my practice and they, they own some of it today, but you know, it's good for them. Right. And it was good for me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have invested in myself, right. But they were willing to take a chance on it. And for them, it wasn't a huge expense, right. They already had the facilities and everything. They're just running a little bit of money they, that they thought would come through. But if you can find people like that, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, certainly. Um, parts of your practice that are outsourced or, you know, part of managed service organization or anything like that, you know, billing, revenue cycle, HR, anything like that, uh, the EMR, are there any things like that that are not being handled directly in-house? You know, we actually do everything in-house. Our billing is done um, kind of half by our billing team, half through Athena, which is our EMR provider. Athena is really it's a mediocre EMR, but a really strong billing platform, you know, so <laughs> that's why we use that. The analytics are great. So you get a lot of good data if you use them. That's one of the reasons we like to do that. But, you know, pre-auth, all that stuff, we keep it in-house. I think it's just too personalized. It's hard to do everything outside of the practice. Oh, so even the pre-auth, that's interesting. Even the pre-auth. Yeah, yeah. So we have a big team that does that. What you find is um, if you have your pre-auth people really looking at your medical necessity docs, they're looking at the Medicare LCDs, NCDs. They then know what to look for in your notes and to highlight that stuff. Mm -hmm. It just saves a lot of time. Yeah. If you outsource all that, it, it's just tough, I think. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, even working in a hospital, yeah. when when it goes anywhere outside of IR, if it goes to central scheduling or you know OR scheduling, mm -hmm. I, I mean, we experience these nightmares every day in the hospital. So I certainly know what you're saying. It's it's nice to keep it uh, with, with well-trained people in in your own department or your own practice in, in your case. How about for uh, for your insurance contracts? Now, do you uh, do you outsource that for someone to negotiate for you or have you done that all in-house as well? Yeah, that that I would recommend hiring someone. You know, they have the relationships to the local payers. They can guide you. They kind of know, I mean, they have the experience, right? Like they know what numbers to look for, what numbers to ask for. Um, that was huge when we started our ASCs. Um, you know, in Indiana, Anthem is by far the biggest pair on the private side. So we really needed to, uh, you know, get a contract with them when we needed the ASCs to get going. And they don't make it easy, right? Like, um, they just don't pay for a long time, right? They play some games. But if you have like a consultant, I think in our case, our guy was a lawyer too. They can really help guide you, kind of ease your concerns. They tell you to ask for crazy numbers. Maybe you get some of them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How'd you decide... As you were expanding your practice, as you got too busy to just practice out of one center, how did you decide on your market research telling you where to build your next center? And how did you deal with your property acquisitions? Was it initially rent? Was it rent to buy? Or was it pure uh, upfront acquisition? Yeah, great questions. Um, as far as expansion, we would maintain data on where our referrals are coming from. Okay. And so for the Second and third clinics, that's actually what it was based on. You know, we just kind of saw where these patients were driving from. And in Indiana, oh, wow. people drive, you know, like they're, they're willing to drive an hour here and there, yeah. you know, an hour and a half. No one cares, right? right? right. But the closer you get to those people, the, the better, right? So that's kind of how we planned out, I think, numbers two and three. After that, it's just kind of a leap of faith, right? You kind of see where areas are growing. Growing areas are always good, right? It's good to just get in especially because there typically aren't established referral patterns in those communities. Yes. So if you go somewhere that's new, you can just kind of be the guy, right? Mm -hmm. As far as buying versus renting, you know, in the beginning we did buy um, our real estate. 
mostly because Indiana is just a really cheap place to buy real <laughs> estate, you know, like it's probably cheaper to buy in certain yeah. cases than rents. <laughs> um, the later uh, or more recent facilities have been uh, situations where we rent. But I will say that, you know, even leasing space and ASC build out's not cheap, right? It's a seven figure build out. You're taking out loans to do that. You got to be a little careful. Having that financial flexibility, though, meant meant a lot to us. So mm -hmm. um, that's kind of why we did that. Did you ever go into places where you felt like there was an established presence um, in either vein care or PAD, you know, the, the bulk of your IR practice? Yeah. So, you know, actually, when we first showed up in Northwest Indiana, there, there are a lot of people doing veins, right? I don't think a lot of them were focused on medical venous disease. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's some cosmetic clinics. And then, you know, when you think about what it takes to do a vein clinic, you realize the barrier to entry is really low, right? So like, you know, any cardiologist, any surgeon, any burned out pediatrician or whatever, you know, <laughs> like has the opportunity to run like a vein clinic, you know, but if they meet like a Medtronic rep, they might do it, yeah, you know, yeah. and these guys are just doing it on the side. And, and it's interesting, like in some of these communities, Everyone will tell you like, hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so is the vein expert out here, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you go there, you're like, this isn't exactly where the standard should be, right? You're like, I think we could do it a little bit better. You know, actually, I, I recall when, when you were practicing in our area, you were one of the only guys doing real deep venous work, <laughs> you know, like, and I could do some in the office, but I was like, oh, finally, you know, I don't have to send someone two hours away, right? Yeah. Because... What's happening in the community isn't actually the standard of care. That's what you realize, right? Yeah. And so if you can play off of that, you can build a business. That's, that's my, that's my uh, take on that. You know, you, you'll get people who call you up, they yell at you, right? They're threatened. Yeah. And that's happened to me, by the way. Like, I have a guy I've actually still never met in person. He called me up just to yell at me when I was starting. Yeah. And I have no idea why. He was just threatened, I think. Yeah, I've certainly um, had that experience as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... It's not good, but yeah, you deserve to be there if you're doing good work, right? Certainly. Yeah. So who, so, I mean, how, how did you watch your business flourish? Cause I'm assuming you were turning away a lot of patients that other people may have treated, you know, um, sort of borderline cases they may have treated, um, you see, you know, based on everything that you, you write on social media and from our prior conversations, you treat everything extremely clinically first and then think about doing a procedure. Um, seems like your business, as far as revenue generation, would grow slower than some of the other practices in Northwest Indiana. Um, can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you, you know the thing I tell you is if you're focused on vein disease, it's everywhere. There's so much work, and it still remains undertreated, right? I think there's a portion of the population that's overtreated, and then there's another portion of the population that's just completely undertreated. And, you know, in the beginning, literally every single day I was driving around Indiana trying to meet someone for lunch or just like a 15 minute talk, right? Just like a doc. And NP NPs are great, by the way, you know, you know, just anyone who'd listen, right? So you spend a lot of time with those people. When they finally send you a referral, it's going to be some train wreck, you know, that like yeah. three people have worked on, you know, and the best thing you can do is just be honest, right? Like in some of those cases, there's nothing to do. There's nothing left. In some of those cases, you can actually fix it, right? Or you can find some midway point. I think in the beginning, I would stress out a lot about those, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get everything back to normal, right? But that's not realistic all the time, you know? But like like you said, you know, if if you're trying to just build revenue, 
you know, you could do that, but I don't think you'll build a sustainable practice, right? Because people are going to see that you're over-treating. They're going to be like, why did you even touch this person's legs, right? Like the other docs will see that. If you take the other approach, I think over time, you know, you'll build the right kind of referral base, especially with like wound care, right? That's like, if you can get in with wound care, you have like an unlimited amount of work, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I get wound patients from Michigan, you know, Southern Indiana. I get a lot from Chicago and I've never met the people sending me the work, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really just word of mouth, right? Yeah. And and how much, uh, so now you've been in this practice for about five years. How much has your role as a, as a door-to-door, you know, a salesman essentially been from the beginning changed to uh, what it is now, and and what is your role now uh, more in the practice? Like how 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 is your day to day in the practice now? Yeah, yeah. So when I said I was meeting people for lunch and everything every day, I, I'm not good at it. Yeah. That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I'm a terrible salesperson. You know? I'm just like, it'd be great if you could send me someone. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I don't. You got to play to your strengths, right? I I don't like doing that kind of stuff. Um, I don't do a ton of it. And I honestly, like, there's a lot of people who are better at it than I am, Mm -hmm. right? Sure. I just try to, you know, send the doc a text, you know, give them a call when the work's done, that kind of thing. I think that works, you know, but I I try not to market a lot like that anymore because I just don't like doing it, you know. Day to day, you know, I spend a couple hours a day just um, looking over things or answering questions and that kind of thing. Mm Honestly, the workflow is pretty streamlined today and the systems in place allow me to just kind of keep an eye on what's going on. So I just kind of do that. And then I'll, I'll do cases usually four days a week. Okay. The fifth day, I don't do anything, you know? Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, you know, our practice runs from eight to five, but not there the whole time, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, uh, seems like a lot's changed over over those years. Yeah. What would you say the lead time was, um, between you know, being a little more involved in marketing and trying to grow the practice to being at a place where you felt like it was sustainable. And I'm sure that had to do a lot um, to do with when you were in the red and when you finally turned the corner and, you know, got into the black. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we started making money, I think month eight or nine in the practice. So it wasn't that long. Oh, wow. Um, and when I say, yeah, when I say making money, that means I can pay myself a salary. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's always nice. So that wasn't that bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Right. <laughs> um, that wasn't too bad. I don't think that stress ever goes away though. You know, um, it took about three or four years where I was thinking, okay, this is going to keep happening, right? Those first few years when someone sends you a patient, you're like, oh man, they're never going to send me anyone again. You know, like, <laughs> it's like you're always worried about that, right? Yeah. But it, it just kind of becomes sustainable. And one of the things you'll notice too is you don't need everybody to send you work, right? Especially when you come into like a small community it's really hard to break those referral patterns. And you realize, you know, some of these guys or, you know, these clinics, these people, they've all worked together for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you show up doesn't mean they're going to send you anybody, but you don't need everyone to, right? You meet a lot of people who are open-minded. There are a lot of new docs coming into the community, mm-hmm. you know, people like that. And that, I think that's really what our clinics like kind of thrived on. We've had like just a solid base of referring docs and then Whenever new people come in in the market, they probably hear good things or we try to meet them. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, do you have any other advice for trainees and early career physicians um, other than what we've already spoken about? Yeah, um, you know, a couple of things. Like I would say figure out what you want to do and just just try to do it. You know, don't 
don't worry too much about like all the little details. You know, you're going to encounter, you know, 50 to 100 different problems, right? In setting up your practice. Mm-hmm. They're all just things that you got to figure out and you'll work through. And with that said, a ton of IRs have already done it. You know, I think you should just reach out to people, ask people questions. I've done that. I still do that today, right? Yep. Um, and I've never had anyone who said, oh, I don't, I don't want to help you, right? Like everyone's interested in what you're doing, right? Yep. Everyone wants to see you succeed, I think. And everyone wants to be helpful. You know, I've had docs from all over the country come and visit us, you know, spend time with us. It's been really interesting for me personally. Um, I've really enjoyed doing that. And people reach out to me all the time, like Twitter, you know, however, I don't even know how some people find me, right? But like, you know, they call me <laughs> and, it, you know, I'm happy to help, right? Like, um, and then, I mean, there's there's guys like you putting out content like this too. You know, I, I'd listen to everything that everybody's ever said. Yeah, absolutely. It's just free advice, right? Absolutely, man. Yeah, no, this, yeah. this podcast is great. It, tr- it truly helped me develop my practice as well. Uh, oh, yeah. And 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 your your content has been great um, on social media. Can you uh, can you can you plug? I know you you don't like doing stuff like this, but can you plug your uh, your Twitter handle and stuff for the listeners, please? Oh yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, K P R A S M D. So uh, it's K Pros M D. Yeah, but um, it, it's I don't know. I don't even know what's on there, but it's it's probably a bunch of Venus stuff. <laughs> it's been pretty you know, great. Some weird injections. Yeah, it's been pretty uh, great thanks, as far man. as uh, yeah. you know, expanding yeah. the scope of what we can do with image guidance. Um, you know, you've posted a lot of things on on ultrasound guided nerve injections and on uh, on vein disease. That's been very very inspiring for for people who want to get out into this. I, I think your content's great, man. And I, I wish you all the best um, in your practice. Um, this has been a fantastic talk. Um, any any parting words for the audience um, before we log off? You know, I I would just say, like, I, I have no idea, you know, how we built our practice. Like, when I look back on it, you know, because where we started to where we are today is just totally different. I think you should really just throw yourself out there and try things. As far as, you know, all these weird injections and stuff like that, like, that's the easy stuff if you're an IR, you know, never feel like you can't do that stuff. Everyone can do that, you know, and then all the things to get you to the point where you have a practice, like you can figure it out. You know, that's the stuff we don't know how to do when we come out of training, but mm-hmm. you'll figure it out just like everybody else did. Yeah. That's great advice, man. Um, Once again, I just want to say thanks. It's always good talking to you. Can't wait to, you know, stay in touch even more. And um, I'm sure the listeners really appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thanks, Shmi. Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. I'm sure. <laughs> For sure, man. Okay. Yeah. Take care. You too, man. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable msk on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvie Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Roy Kennebrew. Thanks again and see you next time.